Hi, this is Avram Kivalevich. This episode, What Price Longevity, was riddled with a number of technical issues. And because of that, unfortunately, we didn't get a clear internet connection. And there are some glitches and some breaks. Both Sam and I encourage you to try to soldier through because we believe that the episode does contain a lot of important principles uh, articulated and discussed and we think are important for people to hear and listen. Uh, we are committed to upgrading our tech aspect and uh, our connectivities, and we are going to make that promise to you that we're going to try to be much better in the future in that regard. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni in Yerushalayim. Dr. Juni, this is, of course, your podcast. And as a host, uh, we've remarked about my introductory comments. And I'm going to read something, which I usually just speak off the cuff. But if you'll pardon me, I'm just going to read a little introduction here. Dr. Juni, we've recognized you in, in these past weeks as not only a man standing in two worlds geographically, Eretz Yisrael, yet tethered to a distinguished career of achievement and successful family rearing in the United States. But deeper than that is how you present as one raised and conversant in the philosophy of the Frumvelt, still adhering to its norms, basically, yet an individual who thrived in the halls of an impartially religious academia. Um, Now, that's two worlds. Now, any lifespan that covers the sociological convulsions of race, gender, identity, and the net of inclusion to others that have been marginalized until now, uh, let's say from about your lifespan, which is about from about 1950 uh, to say now, 2020, uh, that should give a perspective of what has been and grants a fellow like, like you, Dr. Sam, uh, blessed with a capacity of detached noticing and on the mark, generally inferences, um, that you have passed through separate worlds and you don't fall sway to easy latitudes uh, that tend to paint the here and now as a rosy place heralding some sort of utopia to come. Yet I believe in a way that's unprecedented. Uh, there really are two worlds that you, and even I am part of, two worlds of humanity uh, that are starkly drawn today. There's persons post-65. Now, we know that's an age that when retirement legislation was drawn up 90 years ago, uh, were correctly seen as uh, trotting uh, euphemistically described golden path to the grave. But today, scientific advancements in understanding disease, uh, developing measures that stave off what in the past the throes of death, have led to a sharp increase in the medium age of life. Uh, And a much larger segment of the population post-80 than any time in our recorded history is around. Uh, And as we can see that the Speaker of the House in the United States is 80 years old, the people that are running for president are approaching 80, uh, at least whether they want to own up to it or not. And, but many, though, 
of these octogenarians are assailed by chronic health issues that put an incredible strain on this planet's health system. And that was brought to the fore with dramatic vibrancy in the first terrible weeks of COVID-19. Now, of course, you know, maybe you're one of these people, the boon in this progress has been increased sensitivity and understanding that takes hold of persons, even in middle age, to say, hey, I want to live longer, and there's ways I can live longer. And that's led to empowerment. And many have girded their bodies and stimulated their minds to remain active and continue in those powerful roles way beyond what was used to be considered the age of being a doddering old fool. However, in sensibility and in attitude, there are these two worlds. And I know that you, as a person who have, has treated those all sorts of persons, uh, could maybe give us a perspective. And here I'm out, here I'm off of my prepared remarks and back to my coming back to you. Let's talk about this, I think, the most important differences of the world of the past and the world of today, which is how do we embrace and understand and deal with such a greater population of persons of age, sometimes even of extreme old age. And how are they functioning? How are you dealing with them? And, and what do you believe is some of these, the primal issues that are just waiting to explode of the meeting of these two populations? Okay, Dr. J. As usual, okay. I gave my speech. It's time for you. Okay, so thank you again for having me. Um, as usual, you start off with the really brush stroke, which I can possibly satisfy. So I will focus in on some areas that I feel that I know something about. Um, first, let me preface. You said that this is an the idea of becoming old, becoming useless, becoming not functional is being pushed off. So you have many more people who are physically older who technically are functioning with more on part with what you would call the younger generation. So I just want to qualify that by saying that even though we're overcoming quite a few of the challenges of um, health, that there still is a deterioration maybe it's not the smart use but still is a deterioration in and I would want to focus not on the physical but on the mental acuity in other words um, when you look at standardized tests of intelligence and solving as people older they will get age of even 30 as they get older than 30 their ability to use their brain most efficiently starts to drop down on average there probably are exceptions there probably are exceptions of people who don't do well before 30 either. But basically, there is a drop down in mental acuity. Um, so that's quite important to understand. Um, the other thing is like from a, like a, a simple point of view, yeah, of 
discrimination or coming up with the us versus them or the um, insiders versus the others is predicated usually on finite resources. And that means that we have something to go around. And if there are too many potential consumers, we like to come up with some way to divide the consumers into those who are going to be the haves and those are going to be the have-nots. And that's religious or cultural lines, but ageism is a way to come up with it as well. In other words, somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to be the one who has access to those resources or decide to do resources. You can see um, older people can become the them in relationship to the younger or middle-aged people who are the us. And of course, there's a caveat over here, neurotically speaking, that the us will turn into them after different standard religious or um, ethnic divides. Um, the resources that I'm talking about over here are not physical resources. It's not like I'm saying there's only enough food order in a cable. I'm talking essentially about um, political and sociological resources. I'm talking about politics. I'm talking about power. I'm talking about decision making. And I'm talking about an elusive concept called respect. In other words, since we are competitive animals, because basically we are animals uh, deep down, so there has to be a certain amount of, shall we say, attributed competence, which is finite. You can't have everybody being a, a chief. There has to be Indians around. There has to be people who are less in the power hierarchy or, to put it softly, in the respect hierarchy that some have and some have less. And traditionally, in societies, in most societies, not qualified in the moment, the older people have been relegated into uh, um, which is outside the political, sociological, and even respect management. They were seen as people who um, should um, like be seen and not heard, which is what we used to use on people on the other. But Dr. J, this is exactly what I was trying to get at. The power aspect, which for years was taken away or it was queer, could not be handled by the old people who were on their way to death is now being grasped by them. Uh, they, are, they continue to hold on to it. They continue to not only wield the power, but they resist bringing in others. And I think both of us agree that this is something that doesn't only occur in the political spectrum or what we see in the world in general, the aging leadership, but also in the Torah world, in this yeshiva Hasidic world, where we have, you know, incredible the centenarians who who led the yeshiva world in, in the last 10, 15 years, um, and yet it, it's 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 I think caused a weakness within the middle <laughs> section. Uh, there are people who really should have been part of the uh, of the conversation people who 50 60 70 years ago would have been the gedolim 
who have been shunted to the sideline while these propped up Zikanim have been sort of like, you know, <laughs> been pushing things and making these pronouncements, not necessarily with all their capacities <laughs> intact. So you know, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but, but I think this is really what we, one of the things I think we need to speak about. Okay, so as usual, let me just draw some distinctions here between different populations, okay? You're alluding to the yeshiva world or the Haredi religious world where their older people seem to hold the power regardless, okay? And you're kind of implying that the power they hold is really a little bit more titular and that in fact they're being managed or micromanaged by younger people. So I just want to draw a distinction here. There's the world at large, which generally um, is much more um, dominated by the now generation. Um, styles are dominated by now, different kinds of music, different kinds of interests. And, and the old standard traditional interests have, have basically been shunted aside. The real contrast, at least in terms of the populations that I'm familiar with, is in the many religious bound cultures, and I'm thinking specifically of Haredim, and I'm thinking also in terms of the religious Arab communities. So let me just give you two episodes that I can think of. I recently watched a serial movie about terrorism. People who are really in charge of various kinds of terrorist activities, but there's no question that ultimately the um, religious sage or the sheikh has the ultimate say. So you can come up with the most elaborate plans. You have to run it by the sheikh. And if the sheikh says no, that's the end of it. And if the sheikh has a suggestion that perhaps you should do X or Y, that's it. It, it stops everything cold. And by the Haredim, that's true as well. It's basically... Both of these cultures, because of their religious nature, are top-down cultures. Now, but you never can assume that somebody younger has anything to add to the formula. He can perhaps run with it or execute it. You can have people who know how to run and then do all the research, like graduate assistants. But basically, the sage or the person who's a scholar or the person who is older actually has it all. I remember a real interesting exchange I had when I was just a the end of high school, and I remember my Rosh Hashiva was a very, you know, prominent uh, functionary, and I had a certain complication in certain commentaries, and I went to him and I said, look, I have a problem here. The Gemara says this, this um, uh, Arishon says this, this Achon, and he cut me short. He says, know everything. Just tell me what your problem is, and I'll solve it for you. In other words, he couldn't care less what I had to say, not because the idea was, um, I'm stupid. No, I'm smart, but he's much smarter. He knows it all. That kind of attitude is very strong, um, and it doesn't just come from the old generation. It comes from the younger generation as well. Like People stand when a sage speaks, and they are just interested in picking up everything the person has to say because they have nothing to add. And if they understand it, it's automatically understood. It's my problem. It's not his problem at all. So that's very distinct. And again, if I, in terms of my own studies and research, the contrast to that I can think of is not the contrast, basically the laboratory 
litmus test I can think of is in the status of the older population of Ethiopian Jewry that changed as a function of them leaving Ethiopia and coming to Israel. Like in Ethiopia, it was understood the elders have and do nothing. And they basically are the oracles. They're the pathway to truth, to justice, to proper religion, whatever it is. And then when the Ethiopian young people came to Israel and started getting assimilated into a more modern culture, it changed totally. And um, the status of the, um, of the uh, elder people, the elder sages even of the Ethiopians, did a they were demoted from being the wise people who one consulted to people who were totally derided, um, even insulted their faces by saying, you know nothing, you have nothing to say, nothing to add. And of course, kids would get into the uh, pose, you can't even speak the language, you don't even understand what modern technology is, but the basic notion is this is no longer top-down. This is now a down culture or if you wish, even down up, which means you are now dependent on us. Not only have we become emancipated from the, um, shall we say, um, totalitarianism or dictatorship of the older, so-called wiser population, but they are actually more in status than we are, and they have to be subservient to us and are dependent on us and their very living. So that's an interesting contrast to the rest of the world, so to speak, now with the world at large and the um, pockets of, shall we say, religious slash tradition driven sub subsections of the population. Um, I, I, and you know, that I, aspect, is, yes, go ahead. Yeah, so I think though there's an, an interesting dichotomy that does occur where, yes, there are certain venerated sages that are on this incredible pedestal. But I think even within that population, you can see that the amount of, uh, let's talk the statistics, the amount of older adults that are shunted into nursing homes, even in the Haredi world, is astonishing. So yes, there is this lip service and more than lip service to to the Rebbe or the Zokain or the Godel who who is in his 90s, but their own parents or grandparents, uh, they are not given a, a prominent honorable place within their homes, but 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 the nursing home and assisted living population is growing. So it's almost like we talk about living in two worlds. They they do understand that this is Moshe out of Me'ev Esrim Shana, their leader, but their own father uh, is not looked at in the same way, and 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 they are struggling with what the rest of the world is. Is you know, okay? Let me, let me, go ahead. Yes, I wanted to correct something that you, that you're basically broad brushing. Um, once you have the label of medical malfunction or senility or deterioration or hints of Alzheimer's or whatever, there's no question that even in the Haredi population, people stop being respected. You um, deal with the elders gently, perhaps, 
not as much as they should, but sure, that's not respected. But I'm talking just the generational divide can be moved back a little bit just to be able to analyze this. When you look at a te- let's talk about a Hasidic uh, culture, okay? And I know those families well. Father decides if there's any question among people, among children, among adolescents, among newly married um, people, among 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, the 60 or 65-year-old father is the total authority on anything. He will decide what food should be served, where people should go for vacation, if they should go on vacation, whether a certain shidduch gets done, does not get done, what kind of business people should do, what the Okay, so again, basically what we have is an, an unquestioning fealty or um, the assumption that the person either knows or is in charge or should not be questioned, even though there is no assumption that they're necessarily more brilliant or more learned or more educated. It's just that, of course, decisions and attitudes and perspectives, if you want to know, you ask Tati. Or you ask Zaidi, assuming that Zaidi has not been labeled yet as demented. Once he's labeled a demented, or even physically, once you're in a wheelchair, you start losing status. And maybe that's based on our modern, um, um, I would call it um, discrimination of certain subgroups who are clearly uh, handicapped either by age or by infirmities. But other than that, in those cultures, this is it. And that's how it was in in Ethiopian culture. And that's how it is in Arab culture, the religious traditional Arab culture throughout. I would include the Druze. I would include the Bedouins. And I would include um, Egyptians. The basic notion is if somebody is older, you ask them and you obviously go with that. so I think, Dr. Juni, and again, just to... Without like there being a rationale, a, a hierarchy system, which is part of their thinking. Just to reiterate, again, if, if I haven't been clear about it, I, I apologize. I think that the reason why we don't have a record uh, and a sense of this being in the wheelchair, dementia person, is because lifespans ended earlier and I think what we have, a byproduct of, 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 of this world, this era, is a, a growing populace of, unaf- of, of adults, of seniors, who are unfortunately incapacitated in, 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 in many ways and are marginalized. And that wasn't part of the dynamic of the past. They didn't, people who had such severe health issues like strokes that would put them in a wheelchair and not being able to speak for, for years expired 150 years ago, 200 years ago. They, they went to the Elam as, 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 a, as, as any cursory glance at an old cemetery will show you. Whereas today, those people are alive and are being uh, kept alive at, at great expense, and properly so. But yet, you know, it, it, being in that state of being marginalized, and, and, and here's where I just want to get you to focus on this. Have you treated individuals in such a situation? And, and we talked last week about uh, individuals with special needs, 
these are definitely people with, with special needs and who are also, I believe, suffering. So how have you been involved with families in this situation and, and what sort of wisdom can you impart about this? Okay, so again, I don't treat anybody and I've never treated anybody. Okay. In the days of my internship and my postdoc and when I was stuck in the emergency room in the hospital and just had to sometimes because nobody else there. But basically, and yes, I've diagnosed quite a few people who have had difficulties and some of them younger in the 40s and the 50s where they thought there was a medical difficulty or a psychiatric difficulty and basically my diagnosis was fully dementia. So yes, I've dealt with them. And then I had to basically take out the scotch tape and try to bandage the family together so that they can keep functioning. And what I pick up here, just subjectively speaking, is almost like I'm thinking of the cold-blooded, the nightmare of the cold-blooded genesists that uh, came up, you know, basically this was sponsored by Germany, but there were other allied, uh, allied with the Germans, I'm sorry, the, uh, nations who kind of felt along with this too. The specter was, if we don't control people who are marginally functional society, they will become the majority. We will have a majority of sick, crippled, incompetent, mentally um, disabled, or whatever it is, people who will drag the entire culture they would drag it down to the point and that basically um, what the specter here is, the more we become advanced to take care of illnesses which typically used to kill people off by a certain age, we're going to have a vast majority of seniors here of various conditions of semi-competence or incompetence and then the young people the us is have to drag the them, the huge thems on our frail shoulders, and we will have no time to eat out, to have sports, or to talk to each other because we'll be constantly busy trying to titrate medications. So that is the, the nightmare that um, society as a whole is facing in their darkest dreams, but then families alone, you know, the usual thing was, okay, so after we retire, we'll be able to live easy and go on a trip. You can't go on a trip. You have 95-year-old mother who needs constant adjustment of her ventilators, constant management of the nursing staff, and we don't know when she's leaving us. We're not going anywhere. By the time we're ready to go somewhere, we will be on ventilators. So this is a nightmare that the families are having, and sometimes it wasn't expressed that clearly, but that it was like, like how long is this going to go on, Doc? And I would say, as long as you're going to be here, this is going to go on. Maybe you'll have a reprieve that at a certain age, one parent will leave you. Perhaps they will go to home. Perhaps they will have to be hospitalized. But basically, you can count on being in charge here. So they used to call us, at least me, sandwich generations, because we were taking care of our children as we were taking care of aging parents. And that was especially true for the post-Holocaust um, generation where our parents basically had a late start, started when they were 50 years old. But now everybody's getting sandwiched in because these seniors are just around and they don't leave us. And some people are very exasperated. If they are, have like good moral character, they won't say it. If they have even better moral character, they won't even allow themselves to consciously think it. But you know, when you come to a shrink, it's obvious. They are stuck and it's frustrating. 
So, so last week, Dr. J, uh, you uh, shined a laser beam of reality trying to pierce, um, you know, this rosy world that, of, of, of people who were dealing with uh, children uh, developmentally, uh, developmental disabilities. And, and you talked about being honest, and, and I think that was a very strong message that resonated. What sort of message, whether you treat them or you diagnose them or you've observed, what sort of message can, can we extract from you today for so many people who I think are going to be listening to this podcast who are either in the situation you just described who are looking at a future of that situation? Uh, what, what, what is one of the keys to balance this? Okay, so I can tell, tell you something that's part and parcel of my feedback to families after I do a diagnosis of this sort, and it's, it's bifurcated. It's, it's, it's two, two types. For the people who are not intensely religious, my um, message to them is, I advise you to put your parents in a supervised facility. I advise it and I will give you a medical note that you can take to anybody you want to and you can say, no, it's this guy who we paid a lot of money to for a diagnostic and said that this person will be doing better for themselves. They will live longer and they will function better with the side note that you, the host family, will be able to live rather than be totally inundated by this feeling of having to take care of someone. Um, the side note is try to feel as little good guilt as possible. And that's a prescription that most people can't do because they will feel guilty. When it gets to the religious populations, it's harder to give that message because to say you have to put them away, you can't say that. So the only message I can give is that if you decide to get this person out of your house, you should not really feel as guilty as you will because it makes a lot of sense. You have to be able to breathe yourself in order to help somebody else breathe. At this point, you're not breathing. So you're not helping this person because your anxieties, your um, irritation, and again, then I'm getting to the same message as we do if people are dealing with them, younger disabled people. There's a frustration here, and you're letting it out on your parents and grandparents, and they're becoming victimized, and they're not doing them a favor. So if you just get rid of this kind of... Um, venting, which is inappropriate, you'll be able to have a better relationship with them. And of course, there are halfway solutions as well. Definitely take a live-in at a house. You have to do it. You have, if necessary, convert the garage, make that a living space for the live-in, and maybe even for the elderly patient, so that there is a certain degree of independence. Yes, they need to have a different kitchen, which you believe. And no, they don't have to sit in the living room all the time. They can be in the living room some of the time. So that's a titrating, basically, that I use for people who cannot let go because they have too much of a superego and they feel too guilty about it. Well, again... And I have to tell you that my confidence that vice will be followed is not as strong as it should be because often it's not followed because they say, oh, this is just a ruthless doctor. I often get that. You know, I hear them talking in the waiting room. It's not hard to hear them. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the Gemara Kedushan that talks about um, uh, a, 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 a Tana or an Amora who had a mother who was clearly uh, in the stages of dementia. And when it came to a point 
that it became extremely difficult and emotionally uh, a, a great burden, his Rav told him that you should have somebody else deal with her uh, because this is something that is taking too great of a, a, a task upon you. And, and this has been codified, I, I think, by, by rabbinic scholars and Shubhas, that there does come a time when, when such a thing is necessary. I guess, you know, I think the elephant in the room here is um, what I started with, which you haven't really talked about. And, and of course, I would never become an advocate for not keeping a person alive or, or saying, like, like, as we hear um, from many, many doctors, that the quality of life, is, this is an issue of quality of life and quality of life. And, you know, a person should be allowed to... Um, to, to, to end his life with dignity, as they say. But you know, I, I don't have uh, a, a, a great answer. And, and, and I'm wondering, again, um, other than the sanctity of life and the significance of every moment you can be in this physical world that we call you know, the world of, of the living or Elam Hazah, is, is is there something that you know that that can be done um, you know, to halachically not have such a situation constantly occur? You know the the the, the you know the Rebbeinu should 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 allow us real eitzes to to live long and strong, but as you say, to basically be only half alive. And to function at such a a level that's such almost a disgrace to that person, um, it, it's extremely sad. I was um, in the apartment. I don't want to say who it was, but I was in the apartment of a, of a person who had been one of the greatest rabbinic thinkers of his time. He had written brilliantly and was was a lion, and yet he went through a very very difficult longly extended illness. And I was in his uh, apartment because he had to be moved into a private area with his family. And I went into his closet uh, because that's where we were staying for Shabbos. And I saw all of his, his clothing was marked. Wear this on this day. Wear this on another day. This is what you should put on on Shabbos. And I was thinking, this was a person who I used to read his chuvas, read his chidushim. I interacted with him. It, it is, it's, 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 it's a, an immense tragedy when, when we confront it. Is, is there something that can be perhaps be persuaded that maybe, we're not talking about ending people's lives, but maybe there could be a halachic approach that wouldn't necessarily put a premium on extending people to the point of turning them into a, a, a grotesque uh, shadow of what they once were. I don't know if I'm making my point clearly, but I, but, but I think you understand what I mean. No, I, 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 hear, I hear you, and there's no way you're going to get me to put on a rabbi's hat, but I can tell you that I have had interactions with rabbinical decisions in this kind of context, and the, just to contrast it, in other words, um, here's where the problem of standing in two worlds really come up. You know, I have two feet, and they're not necessarily aligned. 
So um, when I deal with some people who are not Orthodox Jewish, okay, and their decision is, for instance, not, not only institutionalizing someone, but DNR is very common. Um, I, and they say, we would like to do this. I say, I totally understand your rationale. I don't feel compelled to say, well, you really should consider X or Y or Z for religious persons. I I'm not a rabbi, and I can't do that role. Even if I'm remiss, I cannot do it. Um, essentially, we blessing in disguise until now that decisions were made for us, and essentially DNR decisions were made um, not so much uh, um, openly, but doctors made DNR decisions all the time. And I was in hospitals, I saw it happening constantly. They made a decision saying, no, this doesn't make sense. I'm not bothering. This was before the days of having to have all kinds of signatures. They'd make decisions. In a sense, we are now being forced to face realities, and it's quite difficult. I know Moshe Feinstein, for instance, has some DNR chubas, and his basic compromise is um, that you don't have to change the status. In other words, if it's a certain status right now, you don't have to change it. It has to do like with renewing oxygen tanks or coming up with an other invasive medicine that has not been administered. But again, there are some compromises there that I see coming up halakhically from my lay perspective. But I don't think there is a solution because the real ogre here is not really um, allowing people to die. The real ogre here is guilt. And we always feel guilty and we feel remiss when there is an implicit standard of what we should be doing that's abstract and does not take into consideration the day-to-day horror that people have to go through. So no, I don't have a solution. And as usual, I'm not very cheery and optimistic about life because I don't think life is that cheery and optimistic. Life has its ups and it definitely has its downs. And we all will have to deal with it one end or the other. So now I'm getting closer to the point where I have to deal, not with my patients. So personally, I'm getting to closer to the receiving end. And until now, I was very actively in the um, administering end. And there is guilt both ways, essentially. Yes, well, that's, uh, I think, uh, uh, I think that really brings us full circle, as you've sort of admitted that we are, myself as well, standing at that other end and and contemplating what, what what should be the best possible uh, best possible ways, um, I, I I think that one thing I think I, I would just I would like to re, I would like to rephrase that I don't think we're looking for the best I think we're looking for the least worst <laughs> Yes, as, as usual, the best doesn't exist here. As usual, Doctor J, I, I I need you as my favrusa and my language uh, corrector because. I definitely have a tendency to to look at things perhaps in and an overstate the case, and I, I'm always happy. And I think all our listeners are as well that you're giving us these type of correctives that give us a much more realistic look at what we can do. But uh, again, to, to end with some aspect of hope. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.